Section 16 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G. K. Chesterton. Section 16. The Greed and the Company Promoter, by G. K. Chesterton. The sensational exposure of the plot between Bolshevists and the German government for the reversal of the Great War and the ruin of Western Europe interests everyone intelligent enough to know his own interests but it interests me in a small and special fashion also because it affects what i recently wrote in these columns about bolshevism i can honestly claim that in the course of many controversies there have been few things that i have had cause to recant there are some i may have had cause to regret i have generally been able to stick to my guns but the laugh is certainly against a gunner who was fired at a target because he thought it was a castle. In this sense, I might regret some assaults on some positions, not because they were more solid than I suggested, but because they were less solid than I supposed. I have aimed at something which I thought was a head and was only a hat, or, in other words, what I thought was a philosophy and was only a fashion and the fashions can fly faster than the shots or arrows. In my youth I made tremendous efforts against the boom in the materialism of Heckel, as popularized by Mr. Blatchford. Nowadays we never hear the name of Heckel. Morally he is one of the men killed in the Great War, and he has not even got a war memorial. Jena, where he was a professor, has more than once been the scene of disasters to Prussia, Similarly, I have covered many pages with refutations of state socialism, and now it have been officially abandoned by the socialists. All this would have happened just the same if I had spent the time in writing detective stories about the murder of the vicarage, and the guilt of the governess, or the curate, a vocation which I vastly prefer. It is so in the sensation of Genoa, those who talk of two entities called Germany and Russia are misled by mere symbols. It is as if they talked of Russia as double-faced under the impression that there really is an eagle with two heads, or of the embrace of Russia as if it were really a bear. What has happened is simply this, that certain cosmopolitans, largely Jewish, living in Moscow, have destroyed the national government under cover of communism, are now engaging in similar commercial cosmopolitans living in Berlin or Frankfurt, by frankly falling back on capitalism. The commercial Central Europe is to be established in spite of the war. Of course, there are sincere men involved. Lenin probably cares for communism. Trotsky probably cares no more for communism than for Calvinism, and not half so much as for capitalism. But that individual sincerity is not the main truth about Bolshevism. Now the truth about Bolshevism is very simple. It is that we all wasted our time in disproving it in theory. 
instead of waiting for it, to disprove itself in practice. But I do not mean merely disproving its own excellence. I mean disproving its own existence. There is not, and never has been, any such thing as Bolshevism, as described and desired by the truest and genuine Bolshevist. They have not been disappointed in the end. They have been deceived from the beginning. What they were watching with admiration was an operation entirely different from their notion of it, from beginning to end. We were quite as much deceived into denouncing it as they into admiring it. Neither the thing we hated nor the thing they loved is there at all to be loved or hated. What is there is something quite different. It is rather like spending hours in scientific debate with a crank or a crazy inventor, merely to find that he is a common company promoter. In a sense, we take the scheme less seriously and the schemer more seriously. Suppose a man comes to us with flashing eyes and flourished papers to prove the feasibility of some great communist or communal scheme. Let us say a colossal umbrella to be erected over the whole of London to keep off the rain. If we find his eyes and papers and personal magnetism beginning to prevail among our neighbors, we may endeavor to dissuade him and them from the scheme. We may argue, in a rationalistic fashion, that the roof which kept off the rain would also keep off the sun. We could insist that London seldom suffers from a tropic excess of sun, and that so covered it would be as dark as a buried city. We may take the higher ground of the imagination and insinuate that under so large an object something would be lost of the exquisite skyline of St. Paul's and the Tower Bridge, or the spires of Westminster, seen from the river. We might even argue, in our fantastical and utopian fashion, that there is a sort of advantage in each man owning his own umbrella, because he can put it up and down when it suits himself. We might exhaust ourselves with eloquence and logic, watching the skyline of chimney-pots all the time with hourly alarm for the first beginnings of that top-heavy tower, that mighty mushroom spreading over the sky. But we should rather regret our wasted words if we found that the bright-eyed gentleman with the papers was one of those purely commercial characters for whom promoting a thing means anything but producing it. We should count our words wasted when we found he had never had the smallest intention of raising an umbrella all over London, but only of raising a subscription all over London. If a man wanted us to quarry for gold in Shakespeare's cliff, our first resistance might be instinctive and emotional. We might adjure the vandal not to violate the symbol of the national poet, or we might see an omen of disaster in making caverns of the white cliffs of Albion. Our further objections might be geological, and concern the probabilities of finding gold in the lump of white chalk. But the objections would vanish with the advantages from our mind before the most vital objection of all. And that is the simple fact that the gentleman was not dreaming of digging for gold, however much he might be dreaming of finding it, in pockets not of the geological sort. In short, it is the experience of everybody in connection with wildcat schemes, especially in finance, that they are subject to summary or detailed criticism according to whether they are seriously intended at all. We do not call in naturalists to consider the wildcat as a domestic animal when once we are sure 
It is a fabulous animal. Now the Bolshevist is that prophet who turns out to be a promoter. He has led us into wasting words over whether his aim was possible, when in fact, even if it was possible, it was not his aim. He has led us to criticize the communist state like the communal umbrella, and to seek for the golden age in the Russian cities like the gold in the Dover Cliff. But though we were looking for it, he was not. He was looking for something much more solid, and his new combination with the cosmopolitan element in Germany has only solidified it. The critics of the Bolshevist may have managed to prove with laborious lucidity that utopia is utopian, but he was not looking for utopia. He was looking for Mittal Europa. He is looking for the old, pre-war ambition of a more or less financial and cosmopolitan consolidation of the Teutonic and Slavonic worlds, generally under a domination that is neither Slav nor Teuton. We may have shown socialism to be unworkable, but this is not socialism, and this is not unworkable. It is capitalism of the worst type, and on the largest scale, and it is workable enough in the sense of making other people work. This is not anybody's utopia, and cannot be dismissed by anybody for its utopianism. This is not an earthly paradise, though it is earthly enough. This is not a golden age, except in the sense of being greedy for gold. This is not a new Jerusalem, except in the sense of being run by Jews. This is not even Bolshevism. It is only the thing that Bolshevists have aimed at, and Bolshevists have achieved. What the Russian Revolution did, so far as this argument is concerned, was simply to ensure that the Russian people should not be exploited by Russians. It arranged for their being exploited by aliens, and especially by Asiatic aliens. It destroyed the old monarchy and aristocracy, which, bad as they were, might have been more or less patriotic, destroyed them largely because they might have been more or less patriotic. They were destroyed in the name of communism, but not for the sake of communism, though of course there were many honest dupes, even among the leaders, who were really communist. It was done for the sake of a capitalist combination, which might have been imposed by German Jews on a defeated Russia, but is now extended by Russian Jews to a defeated Germany. It seems almost as if it were time that the nations which were not defeated had something to say in the matter. End of section 16. Recording by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida.